You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Listeners, welcome back to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And welcome to the second half of our discussion of anything worth doing is worth overdoing. As promised, today we are going to focus on this particular datage in a professional context. Let's talk about the overdoing mindset. I've been told I'm intense. It's probably the most consistent adjective that gets ascribed to me. I'd like to think it's just the prominent eyebrows and the bald head, but I know it goes well beyond that for me. Listener, has anyone ever told you that you're intense? Was it delivered as a compliment? Intense is one of those interesting words that can have a positive, negative, or completely neutral connotation. I think when it's applied to individuals, it's usually intended as positive or negative. I know it's been used as both intermittently when describing me. One of my favorite people on the planet and a true friend is probably the one who refers to me as Mr. Intensity most often. Brent Cunningham of Highland Partners in Los Angeles. Brent is one of the most laid-back people I've met in my entire life. If he sat down with both of us, you would initially observe that he and I are polar opposites. While Brent has spent his career in L.A., he's originally from Washington State. As an aside, he and I place bets of pride only, every time his Washington State Cougars play the Stanford Cardinal. These days, betting anything on Stanford football is a guaranteed L, as the kids would say, a certain loss. Brent carries that Pacific Northwest laid-back calm and steady nature with him in his personal and professional life. But where Brent and I are very much the same is in being high achievers, hard workers, and respecting the value and the blessing that comes from our relationships with others. Like I said, I I love and respect Brent as a professional and as a fellow father, and to this day, he's the most knowledgeable, professional, and hardworking commercial real estate broker with whom I've ever worked, simply put. I hope we can get Brent on the podcast at some point. That'd be great. Brent might agree that my intensity is born out of a couple of different factors. One is an extremely high set of expectations. I often tell people with whom I'm working professionally that I know my expectations are unreasonable. But that doesn't change the fact that they are my expectations. Along with that, I explain that all of my expectations of others are a derivative of my expectations for myself. I hold no one to a higher standard than I hold myself. In this way, I try to lead by example. I'm not necessarily a rah-rah motivational leader in a company setting. While I'm an optimist at heart, I believe hope is an essential component of success, but 
not at all an effective strategy for getting there. I just dropped a bonus adage on you there. We'll do an episode on that in the future. Rather than trying to instill hope in my team, I usually try to build morale by demonstrating hard work. I make sure I'm always working harder than anyone on my team and try to set the gold standard for effort and achievement. I'm pretty sure Braden and Camden would tell you that's part of my parenting style also. Yeah, I think my boys would tell you their dad is intense too. Even though they get to see my goofy side at home. I think another reason people find me intense is because I operate very methodically and systematically in my professional life. I build organizations that are thoughtfully structured and efficient. I'm very focused on processes and procedures as essential components for scalability. Doing something once is easy. Doing something over and over again successfully requires a process and a system. Wow, there's another bonus adage for you. Look out for an episode on that topic also. As Nick Saban says, trust the process. There is value in creating a process for success, but there are a lot of people who reject any sort of structure altogether and find adhering to process stifling, frustrating, maddening, or maybe just incomprehensible altogether. I think my 16-year-old Camden falls into this camp. And a third reason I think people find me intense, maybe the primary reason, is my relentless creativity. I'm not referring to artistic creativity. I possess very little of that, I can assure you. I'm talking about not artificially creating guardrails for myself. My dad always says that he wants to understand all of the rules, not to follow them blindly and not to break them overtly, but to know how to navigate within and around the roadblocks to find a path to success. I've inherited this mindset from him. People always talk about thinking outside the box. I've never even seen the box. Oh my gosh, that's a third bonus adage. I'm just giving away way too much in this jam-packed episode. But I guess that's appropriate in an episode dedicated to overdoing it. We'll come back to abandoning the box in another episode down the road too. Creative problem solving can be uncomfortable, perhaps even intimidating for a lot of people. Those who are more accustomed to following the party line, adhering strictly to institutional guidelines, holding to every letter of the law in the rule book without question, those are the people who probably struggle the most with my approach to solving problems, managing projects, and operating organizations. So, love it or hate it, I'm an intense guy. I've learned to embrace it. It's a fundamental part of my nature. And this is why I believe anything worth doing is worth overdoing in business. What does this mean? How do we apply this datage in our own jobs and in our own organizations? Here are some specific actionable concepts you can put into practice. One, go further than others. Two, don't box yourself in. Three, build process to empower scale. Four, Don't build walls to stifle creativity. Five, don't build ceilings to limit growth. Six, over-communicate. Seven, recognize absolute versus relative limits. Now let's walk through each of these seven points, starting with number one, go further than others. Here I'd like to cite a passage from Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way, where he tells the Zamuri fruit story. I love this story. 
In 1915, in the jungles of Central America, the rising conflict between two rival American fruit companies came to a head. Each desperately wanted to acquire the same 5,000 acres of valuable land. The issue? Two different locals claimed to own the deed to the plantation. One company was big and powerful, the other crafty and cunning. The first, one of the most powerful corporations in the United States, United Fruit. The second, a small upstart owned by Samuel Zamuri. United Fruit dispatched a team of high-powered lawyers. They set out in search of every file and scrap of paper in the country. Zamuri, the tiny, uneducated competitor, was outmatched, right? He couldn't play their game. So he didn't. Flexible, fluid, and defiant, he just met separately with both of the supposed owners and bought the land from each of them. He paid twice, sure. But it was over. The land was his. I'm grateful to Ryan for bringing this story back into the light for us today, after over a hundred years, to illustrate how going further than others can lead to success. Zamuri was willing to overdo it. In this case, overpay for it. But that willingness actually led him to an outcome that was far more effective and probably cheaper in the long run. And it was not just Zamuri's drive and willingness to go further that propelled him to success he was also willing to break from convention. This leads us very nicely to point number two. Don't box yourself in. We hear all the time, think outside the box. As I told you, I like to say, I've never even seen the box. Don't succumb to the limiting fallacies that try to draw the box. What do I mean by limiting fallacies? Limiting fallacies are statements that arbitrarily define barriers without any reality behind such barriers. The most common limiting fallacy is simply, you can't do that. We've all heard this before, right? This is someone trying to shove you into the can't box. Anytime I hear one of these statements, I don't take it as a rule. I adopt it as a challenge. Because a limiting fallacy is by definition false. You can't do that just means it hasn't been done before. Stay out of the can't box and just work harder to find a way. There's another box they will try to stuff you into. I call this the forced paradigm box. What's a forced paradigm? When I refer to a forced paradigm, I'm talking about when someone creates an unnecessary set of guidelines around a particular problem which complicates the process of solving the problem or makes the solution completely impossible to attain. Let me give you a not-so-hypothetical hypothetical example from my business, commercial real estate. Suppose someone came to me and said, Chad, the city doesn't allow parking lots adjoining the street and the tenant you are developing for won't go on that site unless they can have ample parking outside their front door between their building and the street. How the heck are you going to convince the tenant not to kill this deal since they can't get the parking they want? The person who asked that question in in this example just set up a forced paradigm. They have taken as a given that one, in this particular case, the city does not allow parking in front of a building, and two, they have stated that a retail tenant, which was actually Walgreens Pharmacy in this very real example, won't accept that configuration. How can we solve this problem given these directly contradictory opposing perspectives? We can't. Not in that paradigm. But is the paradigm absolutely true? No, it's not. 
The forced paradigm is a false paradigm. It is easy to get lured into a false paradigm like this, to take for granted the structure presented in the question itself and to try in vain to solve an unsolvable equation. But the path to success is to change the paradigm. In this real case, it took a great deal of research and countless discussions with several people at the city to understand not what the letter of this ordinance was that prohibited parking lots between buildings and streets, but rather to understand the underlying fundamental principles of the ordinance and the motivation behind it. It was all about aesthetics. The planning commission at the city absolutely hated seeing a sea of asphalt between a road and a commercial building. They wanted the town to look like a truly urban environment, with the buildings pushed right up to the street like you would see in Manhattan. These principles in urban planning are considered new urbanism, and they've become particularly popular and often challenging to navigate in more suburban environments. At the end of the day, it wasn't actually the parking lot the city opposed. It was the lack of a structure against the sidewalk in the street. The answer? We designed a site plan that had a wall constructed along both streets at the corner and cut drives through the wall in two locations, allowing people to access the parking lot, which sat right behind the wall between the building and the street. Paradigm changed, problem solved, box escaped. Now that we're all out of the box, let's move on to number three, build process to empower scale. I talked earlier about me being very process-driven by nature. After our discussion about creativity, this may sound contradictory or even a bit schizophrenic on my part, but process can actually empower creativity by creating a framework for innovation and problem solving. As I shared before, it's easy to do something once. Doing something once doesn't require scale, and it can be performed by one person, or at a minimum, completely managed by one person. In this way, an individual who is skilled at creative problem solving can apply that skill directly in practice. However, if an organization is to grow in capacity, it must grow in resources. Adding more people to an organization can dilute the creativity of the organization by pushing the work and the management of the work further and further away from the principle with the creative problem-solving nature. Capturing creativity and making it part of the ethos of an entire organization requires the establishment of processes that, one, allow the nature and the approach of the principle of the organization to flow outward to the rest of the organization, two, empower the individuals and the rest of the organization to take action and apply that creative mindset, and three, promote communication back through the management structure to the principle in order to allow feedback, coaching, mentorship, and redirection as required. Putting a lot more effort into smart process building, really overdoing it on the front end, can pay dividends down the road in this way for an organization. While we don't have time here today to go into exhaustive detail on how to accomplish these objectives, uh, points four, five, and six will give you some basic conceptual guideposts at a minimum. Point number four. Don't build walls to stifle creativity. What if I were to offer you a job as an analyst to crunch numbers and build real estate project pro forma within our organization? 
And then what if you were on the job crunching your numbers and discovered along the way that you really had a passion and an aptitude for project management? If you came to me as your boss, eager to take on project management responsibilities, and I said, you can't do that. You're an analyst. Get back to crunching numbers. What would you do? First, I imagine you'd be pretty upset, deflated. You'd probably return to your number crunching with little motivation and minimal effort. And you might start searching indeed for project management positions in other organizations, right? This is an example of building walls around someone on your team, basically pigeonholing them into a role and not allowing for expansion or evolution of that role over time. It is for this reason that I try not to ever hire for a position, but instead look to hire smart, driven, capable individuals and then allow them to adapt their role over time as their perspectives and capabilities and the needs of the organization change, really pushing team members to think laterally, be cross-functional, expand their perspectives, and not be afraid to step out of their comfort zones is a great way to push beyond traditional organizational frameworks and really supercharge your team. Point number five is closely related. Don't build ceilings to limit growth. Just as it's important to promote lateral flexibility and expansion within your organization, it is equally important to allow for growth within a particular role. We covered this topic in episode two when we were talking about surrounding ourselves with good people and letting them do their jobs. As a leader of an organization, though, this is not a passive process. A leader must make conscious decisions and show a consistent commitment to promoting the growth of individuals within an organization. As a leader, I believe one of the most important jobs you have is to elevate the line of sight for your team members, express confidence in their abilities, paint the picture of success for them, show them all of the possibilities that the future can hold, and push them to achieve to the level you believe they can. This takes significant time, effort, and energy for a CEO at the helm of an organization or for a manager leading a team, but this is time well spent. And this process is not just about being a cheerleader and delivering flowery, motivational words. It's about real engagement, early and often. It, it's critical to provide a roadmap, to connect the dots. Nothing is more motivating than success. Actively engaging with team members to promote early individual success and then reinforcing the pathway to which that success can lead is a great way to overinvest in your organization and see real benefits down the road. This process will also help the individual team members grow along the way so that their competency grows to match their achievement and their responsibility. Point number six is the glue that holds all of this together. Over-communicate. I believe in complete transparency within my company. I want individuals to be exposed to the results of both their successes and their failures. Someone once told me that positive feedback is the true breakfast of champions. This is important. Individuals should know when they've done well, and they should know how their good job has positively impacted the overall organization. Sometimes this is achieved through alignment of incentives, through bonuses, contingent compensation. When the company makes money, you make money. But just as often, positive feedback is equally, if not more effective. Helping people have visibility into the benefits of their hard work is a great way to encourage more hard work in the future through positive reinforcement. 
Just as important, though, is helping your team understand and appreciate the negative consequences of their actions. It is unlikely that your corporate structure will expose any of the team members directly to the risks and potential losses of the company that result from mistakes made by one individual within the company. Sure, there are extreme cases where someone is fired for a mistake or a colossal mistake actually brings down the entire company, but these examples are few and far between. Instead, it falls upon a good manager to find a way to communicate to team members quickly and effectively when a misstep results in a negative impact for the organization. Understanding big-picture consequences associated with small-picture actions or decisions can help employees be more mindful when making decisions in the future. Then we come to a more structured form of communication within an organization, reporting. Now, I know for some of you, this probably conjures up memories of the classic movie Office Space from 1999. Peter, if you could get me those TPS reports as soon as possible, that would be great. I'm not talking about pointless reporting just for the sake of reporting. My dad has told me at least 50 times about a case study he covered in business school where a leader of a major corporation eliminated all reports within the organization in order to increase efficiency and only allowed managers and employees to reinstate reports where they were absolutely required to conduct business. Now, while I can understand the underlying message about organizational efficiency, I seriously doubt most of us work in massive corporations where writing reports actually interferes with our daily workload. It is far more likely that your team is not reporting effectively enough. One of the things I often say within my organization is, you have two jobs, really. Your first job is to do your job. Your second job is to communicate effectively with your team about the job you have done. In my mind, doing your job is absolutely worthless if you don't communicate with your team members and your manager that you've done it, or if you don't communicate the outcomes of what you've done. This is where reporting becomes essential. And the technology to facilitate communication among teams has expanded infinitely to make it easier for teams to report and collaborate. Asana, Basecamp, Slack... And beyond reporting, this is where meetings become essential. One of my most significant managerial battles these days in a totally virtual post-COVID world is just getting people to meet. I'm constantly pushing my team members to interact in an environment that facilitates discussion. Sending an email doesn't promote collaborative thought and collective problem solving. Getting on a phone together, or far better, Getting in a room together can promote tremendously valuable discussion, interaction, and positive outcomes. Finally, we come to point number seven. Recognize absolute versus relative limits. As much as I hate to hear it, sometimes the statement, you can't do that, is true. But is it absolutely true? Obviously, there are things that defy the laws of the universe that we simply can't do. But the majority of impossibilities people confront us with aren't actually impossible. Sometimes these impossibilities are just things that defy convention or accepted practices, which are certainly not absolute. There's always a way to innovate. There's never only one way to accomplish something. Navigating around, between, and through any of these false obstacles is an important practice in business and perhaps the most valuable form of creativity in a professional setting. Sometimes impossibilities are based upon a limitation in resources. 
But resources, manpower, technology, tools, money, these are not fixed commodities. Short-sighted individuals may see them as fixed, but it's up to you and me, listeners, to see past these constraints. And I think most often, possible versus impossible simply comes down to a matter of time. What I'm about to share is as much for my own benefit as it is for yours, listener. It is an area where I struggle the most, given my nature. Patience. Patience is a virtue that eludes me quite often. Most of my success in business has been measured by one variable, the ability to create a sense of urgency. When things are allowed to happen on their own timeline, that timeline can be infinite. But that perspective has to be balanced. My therapist in California used to say to me quite frequently, Chad, you can do everything you want in life, just not all right now. Think about these words. You can do everything you want in life, just not all right now. Put another way, pretty much everything in life is possible, given enough time. Now, human life is finite. So there are problems that cannot be solved and goals that cannot be accomplished in your lifetime. But that doesn't mean these things can't be accomplished. It's your choice, though. Time is a relative limit, not an absolute limit. If you want to tackle a monumental task that will take longer than your lifetime to complete, you have to be totally comfortable endeavoring and knowing that you will not see the fully realized outcome of your labors. These types of big decisions are difficult because it's human nature to desire to see the outcomes of our own hard work in order to feel like we have accomplished something. But there are big problems that take lifetimes to solve, and someone has to work on them. All things are possible given time and dedication. Is it conceivable that there are no absolute limits? Is literally anything possible given enough time to accomplish it? As one great philosopher put it, the limit does not exist. Which philosopher said that? Lindsay Lohan, a.k.a. Katie Heron and Mean Girls. So as we come to the end of this two-episode miniseries devoted to overdoing it, my question for you listeners is simply, do you all agree? Is anything worth doing worth overdoing? Send me your feedback at datages.com. I want to hear from you. And before we part, I owe you a dad joke. So we were talking in this episode about infinite time. I once heard this terrible joke about infinity. It went on forever. Until next time, remember everyone, dad may not always know best, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.